Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon about making Jesus the main character of your life. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to church. Not necessarily our church, but a church. I love that you're listening to this sermon and hope that God will use it to impact you. At the same time, sermons are only a part of how God works through a church to impact people. There are a lot of other aspects that God uses big time in people's lives. So again, I invite you to church. If you're in our area, we'd love to have you visit ours. You can find all the information you need to make that happen at creeksidebiblechurch.org. If you're not in our area, I hope you find a church in yours. I know that that can be really hard, so if you want help, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can just email us at us at creekside.me and say like, I'm looking for a church, and we will do our best to help you in that process. I really mean that. We'd love to help you. With that said, I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. All right, all right. Make sure the mic is working very good. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Yay. <laughs> I, uh, I know you might have thought it was me last week, but that's actually my father. I know he and I look very similar. <laughs> but he so graciously stepped in last minute for me because we had some stuff uh, come up in our uh, household. I'll tell you a little bit about that. Um, he talked about being heavenly minded. But before that, I, I was talking about uh, what it is to come to the end of ourselves. And I used some of our old Bible stories that if you uh, grew up in the church, you certainly would have heard these stories about God getting people to the end of themselves so that they could finally know what it is to fully and totally rely on Him. And that was a little bit, just a, a little bit of, of that week, and then we had the intermission, and so I missed one of the sermons I wanted to deliver, so I'm going to do my best to sort of squeeze two in here. Um, so we'll see how I do with that. But I want to I lead with uh, what caused me to be absent. It was, uh, it's interesting. I was uh, at school. I was teaching. And uh, I get a phone call from the office. And the office says, I don't want to alarm you, but your son uh, came to the office. He was complaining of head pain. And when he was walking here, he, he wasn't walking straight. He was losing his balance. And I thought, well, that is alarming. Uh, he, has a, he, he has a fever? I said, no, he doesn't have a fever. So he's complaining of head pain, doesn't have a fever apparently, and he's losing his balance. In context, uh, for me, Rogan just uh, that week when he was at baseball practice, his coach made him sit down because he was talking to him in gibberish. And he thought, oh, he's, he's too hot. Uh, so he needs to sit down and drink water because maybe he's having a heat stroke. And I call my wife, and I don't worry typically because she worries plenty for the both of us. <laughs> and I, I call her and I say, um, Rogan uh, is in the office and his, and his head is hurting and, and, he, and he's losing his balance. And she says, okay, is, is it serious? I say, well, I think you should come and take him to urgent care. Now, immediately, my wife's head goes from, 
okay, our son is dying. <laughs> from is he okay to the worst thing that could ever happen to him is happening. And in her own heart and mind, she's thinking about uh, the night before, Rogan, uh, after they watched something together, said, Mommy, will you dance with me? Will you hold me and, and dance with me? And she was thinking to herself, he's getting too big for me to hold. But she had this precious moment of holding him and dancing with him. And then before he went to bed, he said, Mommy, my, my neck is hurting. Can you, can you massage my neck? Now, this is, kid, kid doesn't want massages. Kids don't say that, right? And so he's complaining about neck pain, and so she does that. And then I call her the next day and say, Rogan is very lethargic. He's in the office. He's losing his balance. And she says, oh, my goodness. And she just at work had heard a story of someone at her work where their son, who was 12-year-old, 12, 12 just died suddenly of a brain aneurysm. So all of this in context She's worried out of her mind. And I call her, I ask her, hey, like how far away you are, are you? And she is bawling. And I say, are you okay? Do you want to talk about it? And she says, I don't want to say. I don't want to say because she's thinking the worst. Well, the principal comes to my room so that I can go to my son. And I pick him up and I hold him and he's very tired. He puts his face against my face, and I feel it. His face is very warm. I say, take his temperature again. And they take it, and he's got a fever. That makes me very happy. So I say, okay, if he's got a fever, then that makes sense to me if, he, if he's got head pain, if he's tired and lethargic. And so when Ashley comes and takes him to his doctor, they do some tests, and uh, the best news that we, we heard came. He has COVID. We say, thank God. <laughs> he's just got COVID. <laughs> but he's a kid who is uh, very snuggly, which means my wife got COVID. And if my wife gets COVID, it means I get COVID. And so the family uh, got COVID, we got sick, but for us it was the best news we could hear. But it was a, a reminder in that moment of what it feels like to not be in control. When you realize there's nothing you can do but hope and pray for the best, you have no control over this situation at all. But we like to be in control, don't we? We love to be in control. We like to, to know whether there's something we can do in order to help ourselves or to affect the outcomes in our lives. We ask, what can we be doing to achieve or to get or, or whatever the case may be? The last thing we want is to not be in control. And as a chaplain... For high schoolers and middle schoolers, I'll tell you that the question I get more than any other question, my kids write these things called soaps. If you've ever heard, it's, it's a devotional that they do. And in it, they ask questions. And it's a lot of time a variation of this question. What can I do to make sure that I'm saved? What can I do to make sure I'm being a good Christian? What can I do to make sure that I am a Christian. 
And it's at the heart of it, it's not a bad question, at the heart of it. But I have the privilege of teaching uh, this year at least 11th and 12th graders my favorite topic. It's called apologetics. Now, uh, I, I love doing it, but it, it takes a, a serious understanding of philosophy, uh, certainly the philosophy of religion, if you want to do it right. But one of the things that I teach my kids is these things called fallacies. And fallacies are ways in which we get our logic or our reasoning wrong. It's just, in a, in, in a way, it's just bad thinking. You've heard a lot of bad arguments out there, no doubt. And people come to conclusions oftentimes using bad reasoning and bad thoughts. Well, that question, what can I do to make sure that I'm saved, that question is a fallacy. We call it, it's a formal fallacy called a loaded question, or it's also called a complex question fallacy. It's when a question assumes something that itself needs to be proven. When a question has at its heart an understanding that may be itself wrong, and in this case, it's very wrong. If we're talking about only Jesus, we're talking about the only person who saves us. And when we ask the question, what can I do to make sure that I'm saved, we're, we're actually saying, how can I save myself? The person who gets in our way more than any other person is ourselves. The person who gets in your way is you, and the person who gets in my way is me, because I usually want to be in control. How do I save myself? I went just recently to the government's forestry page, and I looked up for an article, I went to their search bar, and I said, what do I do when I'm lost? And the official government regulations for what you do when you get lost in a forest, this is what it says. Don't do anything. Stop. If you don't know where you're at, stay put. In other words, the official the official understanding for what you do when you get lost is just stop and wait for somebody else to save you. They don't say, hey, here's how you save yourself. They say, just stop and stay put because someone will save you. And in our own lives, Sometimes we want to save ourselves by our own efforts. See, but the, the way of only Jesus is not what you do to be saved. It's just you staying put and being saved. That sounds easy. But I think all of you know it's hard to take yourself out of the equation. You get in your way 
all the time. So, when you ask the question, what can I do to save myself? I'll say stop and stay put and ask yourself, who do you trust to save you? And if that person isn't Jesus, well, you're in trouble. So in this sermon, I want to talk about what we can do to do less. That's a weird thing to say. I want you to do less in your life. What I want you to do is abide in Jesus more. Do less, remain in Jesus more. Because it's not about what you do, it's about what Jesus does in you and for you and by you. I want to read this from John 15, 1 through 5. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, a branch is totally dependent upon the vine's sap. In fact, I looked it up, what they call a vine sap, and this is the real name that they use, they call it the essence of life. See, the branch will thrive not because of what it does, but because of where it remains. The only thing that matters in your life is remaining in Jesus. Despite this, our minds and our hearts will always be trying to figure out ways that we can achieve our own desires, our own wants, do what we want, how we want to achieve it. And uh, I, I, I know that this sermon is for me too. And I told you the last time I spoke that one of my biggest struggles is when I am talking to, to young kids, I want so much for them to understand the power and presence of Jesus in their life. And, and I feel so disappointed when I can't do that for them. I'm at the end of myself. I say, man, I just can't do it. And it's God saying, I know. That's, that's why I'm here. I'm here to do it for you. That too often... I trust myself when I ought to be trusting in God. I will do my best. I will give God my all. And I will trust that God will do all the rest. D.A. Carson, he's a well New Testament scholar, and he has been very helpful to many people who study the Word of God. And he defines this word abiding. By the way, the, the Greek word is menos. It means to, to stay or to remain. But this word abiding, he says, quote, the imagery of the vine is stretched a little when the branches are given the responsibility to remain in the vine. 
Now, if you notice, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. But he goes outside of this metaphor and he tells us what we need to do. There is something that we must do. And basically, it's that we must cultivate this relationship with we have. Now, he says, the point is clear. Continuous dependence upon the vine, constant reliance upon him, his persistent spiritual imbibing, which is to drink or to get nourishment from this vine, this is indispensable. It's an essential action or condition or the ingredient of spiritual fruitfulness. To remain in the vine is to take in all the nourishment that Christ is giving us and living on that. Now, if you were here the first week I spoke, you might see what I'm doing. I want to build a little to this moment. I've been trying to show you that you can't do anything apart from Jesus. And that sometimes in God's providence, His being over all things, He takes us through trials that we cannot possibly get through on our own. He has us endure things that we, we just can't possibly endure on our own. He takes us through things and strips us and empties us and shows us one thing. We cannot. We cannot. We cannot do it on our own. We cannot endure on our own. We cannot complete salvation on our own. And it is designed to bring us back to full and total reliance on Him. Sometimes the trials in our life that we feel like, God, I'm sinking, are precisely so that we reach up to him when we finally realize we cannot swim anymore when we finally realize that we can't climb anymore however or whatever metaphor you want to use when god brings us to the end of ourselves when he empties us completely that's when we must fully and totally rely on him in the christian uh manifesto, as it's been called, which is the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus delivers. This is the first virtue he gives. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who, in other words, live in profound dependence on God. You know what the most God-honoring thing that we can do? It's to live in total dependence on God. And you know what the most dishonoring thing was for Israel, for instance? It's a word that we're, we're, we use a lot. The word is independence. It, is it not? Israel said, we can do it on our own. And it was the most dishonoring thing to God. And God had to constantly remind Israel by stripping them of 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 the things they were trying to do on their own, of constantly reminding them that they need God. Whether it is uh, Israel in Egypt, whether it is Joseph in prison, whether it is um, Gideon in the Midianites, he's constantly, constantly stripping us 
of our self-confidence and our self-reliance. I, don't, I feel like I don't need to tell people this. I feel like everyone has had moments in their lives where, where they just realize that they're not in control. And that is God-ordained because you're not in control. And the best you can do is rely totally on Jesus. He's constantly reminding us to cling to Him, cling to Him, cling to Him. And recently, uh, I run this uh, ministry with, with a few other people called Christian Influence. Uh, we have a, a pretty big online presence. And a, a person joined our community. He went by the name Nathan. And he, we've had lots of conversations with this user, uh, Nathan. But he came in there. He came out hot. He said, look, God hates me. He must hate me. He's just rubbing these things in, in my face. All the things I desire and I want and I know will make me happy. I pray for them and I pray for them, but he never gives them to me. So this God must be evil or mean or I can't trust him. I know that these things will make me happy and God's not giving them to me. So he just must be a bad guy. And we've been trying to communicate to Nathan that you're missing the point. If you are going to God to get what you really want, then you're going to God for the wrong reasons. If you go to God because He's all you want, then He has emptied you. He has made you realize that you cannot depend upon your own wants and desires. God has better things for you. And so, and we do it. We look at things in our own, I, everyone has had the experience where they say, I really want this, I really need this, or this is going to make me feel this way, I'm going to have, and then you get it, and you say, it doesn't make me as happy as I thought it would. We pursue things that God does not want us to pursue. And when he robs you of those things, when he breaks you, it is so that he can rebuild you. It's so that he can fill you. Is that so he can be everything that you cannot be. And here is the point. The point is, the first step you need to make as a Christian is the last one you should ever have to take. The first step is you die to yourself. Now that's really hard. If you die to yourself, then Christ will live more fully in you. And then all the steps thereafter are the ones he takes for you. Listen to this in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but, but Christ who lives in me. So the life I now live in the body, I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
The first step, as I said, that we take is dying to ourselves. And if we do it right, it's the last one because Christ does all the other steps for us. It says this in Matthew 19, 16 through 26. Now, someone came up to him and said, Teacher, what good thing must I do to gain eternal life? He said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He asked. Jesus replied, Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not have false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have wholeheartedly obeyed all of these. What do I still lack? This part is interesting to me because Jesus said, why, why call me good or why talk about good? There's only one who's good and that's God. And then the guy says, basically a few verses later when he says, follow all these laws, the guy says, well, I'm good too. Only God's good. And he says, and me. I'm good. What does it take to get to heaven? Being good? Well, I'm good. He said, only God's good. This guy is asking the wrong question. This is a fallacy. It's a loaded question. Do you see it here? What must I do to be saved? And Jesus answers him. He gets him to the right conclusion. He's, he's, seeing, uh, he's seeing that this guy's not getting it, so he says, okay. If you wish to be perfect, right, that's the condition. If you wish to be perfect... Go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he was very rich. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. It will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were greatly astonished when they heard this and said, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and replied, this is impossible for mere mortals. But for God, all things are possible. Look at this. When the condition was, what can I do to be saved? Jesus said, oh, easy, be perfect. You want to be perfect? He took the one thing in that man's life that he knew he couldn't do. Give up all of your riches. Be, what the disciples heard, though, they heard that be perfect and said, well, wait a minute. We're not perfect. You knew that when you chose us. You knew we're not perfect. What, how can we be saved? And he said, now that's the right question. It's not what can I do to be saved. It's who then can save me. Because with man, mere mortals, it's impossible. See, but with God, all things are possible. God wants you to get to the end of yourself and say, wait a minute, I can't. Good. I can. Jesus 
wants our full and total reliance and trust. One of my favorite things to do as a chaplain, I'm going to do it again this year, is when, when, when kids are ready to commit their lives to Jesus, it's common that we do baptisms, right? Some of you have been baptized. If you haven't, let's get you baptized. But the way in which I do baptisms is I like to take them to the Oregon coast uh, because it's cold and it's miserable. And, and it needs to be cold and miserable because remember what it represents. It represents your death so that Christ can live more fully in you. And if we're just dipping our heads into a warm bathtub, it's like, okay, I'm baptized. I wanted to steal the breath out of you. I want you to get knocked down by these waves and keep walking out there and say, I'm going to do it. It's difficult. It's hard. And this last bunch that we did was so awesome. We, I brought a whole group out into the ocean, and they were holding each other's hands, and they were getting knocked down, and they were falling. And, uh, oh, Milena, who's here, she's in the front row. She can't swim. Sorry if that's embarrassing. So she went out in the She's like, I'm going. And she got knocked in. I didn't, I didn't know she was coming back up. Right? People are getting knocked down, and it's hard, and it's difficult, and people are breathing heavy, and it's like, I'm walking out there not because, not because it's easy, but despite it being difficult. Because we need to die to ourselves because Christ is worth it. And if you don't understand its worth, you're missing the whole point. It'll be difficult. It'll be hard. And at times, yourself, you, getting in the way, will struggle against it. But you have to die to yourself so that Christ can live more fully in you. So I love doing these baptisms because I want the, the physical to represent what's happening spiritually. It is an outward example of an inward struggle. You know, it's, it's, I'm going to say it's easier to do if we understand that Christianity is not just a set of principles. It's not just a set of beliefs that we, we do. And I uh, listened recently to a televised, it was a televised interview with Jimmy Carter, the 30, who was the 39th president of the United States. And he was telling an interesting story. He was talking about how when he was a kid, he went fishing with his father. And they caught a lot of fish, and they uh, were putting it on the line as, as you did. And eventually, afternoon came, and his father said, okay, you know, it's, it's time to go. I'm heading back. And Jimmy said, well, I want to stay out here, and I want to fish longer. His father said, okay go ahead, just make sure you bring the fish back. And so as a kid, he fishes longer. You know, they, they had already caught him some. He's having fun. And then he decides to go back, but he's a kid. So he does what kids do. Does he take the path? No, he pokes rocks and throws things, and he wades through the water on his way there. And when he was, when he was going back, the line gets caught and lost, and all the fish go down the river, and he loses everything. 
And so now he's walking home. And he's got the walk of shame. He gets onto the steps and he doesn't go in. His normally very austere father, he's afraid of him. What's he going to say? And so he just stops and stays. Nighttime comes. The father goes, you know, the sun is, is very low, it's getting really dark, so he goes outside to go yell for his son, but there he is, out on the steps. And he says, where, where are the fish? And he's afraid, and he says, Dad, I'm sorry. I lost them. His dad sat with him on the steps and put his arm around him. And he said, it's okay, Jimmy. We'll catch some more another time. And Jimmy begins to sort of break down and he says, it was the first time that I realized that my father loved me. And here is my biggest struggle as a teacher. How do I teach young people that God doesn't just have things he wants you to do, he loves you. It's so much easier to commit your life when you recognize that it's not a set of beliefs or principles that if you reject Christianity, you're not rejecting a religion, you're rejecting a person. You're rejecting a person who loves you so much and who wants to be in relationship with you. You know, I remember listening to my father one time and he said it this way because culture has love so mixed up and disoriented sometimes. He said, rather than thinking about how God loves you, let's scale it back that God likes you. God likes you. He wants to be around you. He wants to be part of your life. He wants you in His life. This relationship, if you can have it, it will transform your life. It's so much easier to give yourself up when you recognize that the person you're giving your life up to loves you and has your best interests in mind and does it better than you do. But what I read in their soaps, here's the second question I always get. How do I know if God is talking to me? Here's why that's a troubling question. They're asking, how do I know what it's like to have God talk to me because they don't know what God sounds like. And they don't know what God sounds like because they're not doing what it is to abide. If you abide, you know what He sounds like. And I, and I want to, here is one of the most often misquoted verses in the Bible, and you've heard it, the truth will set you free. Everybody uses that as if this sort of detached truth that if you just know what the truth is, it's going to set you free. But that's not what Jesus says. Listen here what he says. He says it in eight, uh, John 8, 31 through 32. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free if you abide in my word. But we get distracted 
by the troubles of the world, and we do everything but abide in Jesus. I'll tell you what, it's great that everybody is, is here to t- today, and it's great to listen. I love doing uh, sermons. I love doing chapels. I love teaching kids. But if there's one thing I try to teach people, it's not what you do on Sunday. It's what are you doing the other days? How is Jesus affecting your lives these other days? Are you abiding in His Word? If there is nothing more important than eternal life, what are you treating as most important in your life right now? Martha was getting it wrong. Here's what I want to read for you. Like I said, I'm trying to combine two things. I'm being quick. Don't you worry about it. Luke 10, uh, 38 through 42. One of my favorite stories in the Bible Uh, where you get Martha, 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 right? It says this, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations she had to make. So she came up to him and said, Lord, Don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the best part. It will not be taken away from her. And sometimes we are like Martha and we get distracted by everything in the world. And when you say, hey, have you spent time with Jesus? Have you spent time in His Word, abiding in His Word? I just don't have time. This came up, this came to I, I don't like to read or whatever the case may be. What are the things preventing you from spending time with Jesus? And are you saying... Well, I have all this other stuff to do. Jesus is going to say, only one thing is needed. Only one thing is needed. Abide in me. So, here are some questions to ask yourself. Maybe you're married. Maybe you're married. And you say, man, I want my marriage to be great. What does the Bible say about marriage? It's, it's, if you know what the Bible says about marriage, you know how hard it is. How much harder is it if you don't know what it says? I'm having trouble interacting with people at work, with my neighbors, with, with people I don't get along with. What does the Bible say about how you need to interact? I could tell you what the Bible says, but I'd rather just tell you how to know yourself. Read the Word. Read the Word. Read the Word. You know, our culture right now is is saying, you know what? People just can't sit and listen anymore. We need to make these sound bites. We are the first generation that has stopped saying that we need to make culture conform to the book. Rather, we've said we need to make Christianity conform to culture. People need to read the Word. 
if it's hard for you to sit and, and to, to read and, and, and to get into the Word of God, well, then you need to work on that. You can't just say, hey, I just need a soundbite. Give me the spark notes of it. Here's what I'll find. If you read the Word, not, not even thinking that it will transform you, if you just read it and read it and read it and read it, you won't even have to say it's going to transform me. It will transform you. It will change your life. The characteristics become your own. It begins to get in you as you understand it and as you meditate on it. It becomes written on your heart. You want to know what God sounds like, then you need to read his word because that's what he sounds like. I don't want kids to come up to me and say, how do I know if God is speaking to me? You don't know if God's speaking to you because you don't know what he sounds like and you don't know what he sounds like because you're not reading his word. I can tell you about the Bible and what it says. But I hope that on the, on, on the days that you're not here, you're taking time to abide in Jesus and his word. Please, I promise you that if you are reading the word of God, it will transform your life. And you'll realize that you don't even have to try to think like Christ. You won't have to try nearly as hard as you may already be because His Word is in you and you are abiding in it. If you, if you are thinking, what can I do, what can I do, what can I do? I'm asking you to stop and abide in his word. That's it. Die to yourself, to your wants, to your desires, to things that you need to get done, and abide in his word. And I know that this new generation coming up is, are looking to their parents and looking to the older people who are in this room. And we need to teach them what it is to abide in Christ's word so that they can abide in Christ's word like you. And so I'm asking everybody to help me. Be the example to this next generation so that they can know what God sounds like because they're willing to get into his word. And I hope you do that too. Let me pray for you. Lord, just thank you that we have the word of God and that we can abide in it. God, teach us to die to ourselves. I know that is so hard. That we will often work against ourselves, God, and try to do things on our own. God, I pray that you would be the only person we abide in, that we would know what it is to remain in you, God, that we would meditate on your word, that we would reflect on your word, that we would be taking in the word of God like it is the nourishment that it is for our souls, God. Let us not be distracted like Martha, but let us sit at your feet like Mary. Let us know that there is only one thing that is needed, and that is you. God, I pray that we would not be like the world who is rejecting a person, but that we would be Christians who are accepting the only person that can save us. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for saving us. And I pray that we would rest on that. We would not focus on what we do, but we would focus on what you've done for us. And we just thank you that you are a big God, a great God, and the only God that saves us.
We love you in your precious name. Amen.